I feel very, very safe, safer than I've felt in church in a long time. Can anyone guess why? It's not because of the masks. It's not because of the uh, five-gallon jug of hand sanitizer up here. It's because Josh's dad is in the house. Al Ferris is here. Uh, a few months ago, actually, several months ago at this point, toward the end of last year, I guess, he came and gave the men uh, at the men's meeting just a talk on, uh, really, the, the big picture was safety, church safety, and just awareness of uh, potential dangers. But he also talked about active shooting situations. And um, at that point, I think there had just been a shooting at a church, the one where the, the guy was ready and he took, you know, he prevented a lot of deaths. Um, by being ready and prepared. So that's what he talked to the men about, and I uh, really appreciated that. But that's what he does. He's a, he's a former, current police officer, former, former and current. Yeah, and he does, he trains police uh, in shooting scenarios, and it's pretty awesome what he does. So we are, we're in good hands tonight. <clears throat> All right, so the direction for the next seven weeks, we're, we're in Luke. It feels like we, we are still getting started in Luke. Uh, but we're actually a couple weeks into our study of Luke. This week, if you're following the reading schedule, uh, we are in chapter 6. We've made it through chapter 6 in the readings. And uh, just to remind everyone, here's kind of my vision of how the, this time in Luke will go for us. Number one is that we're all reading Luke sort of just on a loop, uh, reading the whole book. You know, as you have time, reading through the story, beginning to end, and then going back to the beginning, reading beginning to end. I encourage you to do that as many times as you can uh, through the, the seven weeks. But also, there is a reading schedule with shorter sections. All right, and so the second kind of layer or level that we want to have reading through Luke is these smaller sections. And, and as you have time, uh, to take that section and really pray through it, meditate through it uh, through the week as we go. Number three is the teachings. And I will say that I listened to this week's former podcast from when I did Luke a few years ago, and uh, I couldn't, I, 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 I don't know, it was good. What's that? Oh, that's weird. Okay, so the third level, I'm reposting those teachings from the last time we went through Luke. Uh, this was two and a half years ago, leading up to when we planted ECF. And uh, I really encourage you to, to go through those as you have time. Um, that's more of an in-depth survey and a walk through Luke, which is not what I'm going to be doing on Saturday nights. So, uh, and then I want to remind everyone that as we're going through this time, the particular lens that we're looking through is the, the story of David and Israel's story. Coming, we just came out of Samuel and Kings. And Luke, of all the Gospels, brings in echoes of those stories in, in really significant ways. 
so just some guide for your um, some guidance for your study through the week as we go. Um, just to recap a little bit from last week, I gave a, the Old Testament backdrop to Luke. Um, so let me just kind of buzz through that again. Judah had gone into exile at the hands of Babylon. And that's where we left off the story in 2 Kings. Judah has been taken captive. Um, it's 70 years, but the people do come back. And that's what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is about. Uh, they do come back. But it is never anywhere close to the, the, the glorious kingdom that we saw in Israel's golden age with David and Solomon. After the kingdom split, it was never the same. Um, but all through scripture, there are these seeds of hope that you come across. And I think it's interesting at the end of 2 Kings, you see that the very last king of Judah, it says he was given a place at the king's table in Babylon. God still had his eye on the line, the lineage of David. All right. And so in the 400 years, give or take, between uh, the end of the Old Testament, um, there is this period of time where Israel isn't quite sure what's going to happen next. And there's lots of conjecture about, you know, who is the Messiah? When is he coming? Is he going to come? Okay. But there remains a hope. That Messiah is going to come, that the Davidic king will come and will restore Israel. And particularly, there's a hope for these three things. Um, that Messiah will come and save, deliver Israel from the hands of their enemies. Deliver, like, like in the Exodus. Israel viewed itself in the time between the Testaments very much as remaining in exile. Right? They, they had come back technically to the land, but they were under all sorts of other pagan rulership. Right? By the time Jesus comes in, they're under Herod's kingship. Right? Luke points out that in the days when Herod was king, this is a foreign ruler over the people of Israel. So the hope is that Israel would be delivered from the hands of their oppressors. That, um, that God would deal once and for all with the problem of, this, of their sin. Right? And they, they knew that they had turned from God and they knew that they were guilty of sin. And so the other thing that they hoped for was Messiah to come and deal with their sin. Um, most significantly that, that he would come and visit them and forgive their sins. There are all sorts of prophetic, um, prophetic announcements that God is going to come and in the days of the new covenant... He's going to write his law on his people's hearts. And he is going to remove their iniquity. Right? They had struggled with iniquity the whole time. They were loaded down with sins. And they never quite got rid of it. And it kept bringing them into more and more and more division. And brokenness and idolatry. And murder. And eventually exile. So the hope is that God would come and deliver them from their enemies. That he would deal with their sins. Once and for all. And that he would set a king, a Davidic king on the throne. Alright, and if you, if you look for those three things in the Gospel of Luke, you'll see just how significant this Gospel would have been to people whose hope was in line with those three hopes. Was who, whose hope was in line with what we read in the prophets. So I gave a few scriptures to read uh, this week. Psalm 72 really describes 
Israel's view of what a king should be. Right? Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon. And it describes uh, everything that the king will do for his people. He will bring justice. He will crush their oppressors. He will cause even uh, agricultural flourishing and prosperity. But it also says, in verse 11, it says, May all kings fall down before him, and all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, and the poor, and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From the oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. So Israel's king was a a ruler who had the interests of the poor and the broken in mind, and who also would come to rule over all the nations and bring everyone into line with the rule of the one true God. Elsewhere in the prophets, I gave a couple other passages that I just want to touch on real quick. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days... That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. This is Isaiah. This is someone who was prophesying way back before the Babylonian exile. This is around the time when Uzziah and Hezekiah were kings in Judah. Saying, what's going to happen is that God is going to bring all nations. That, that kind of glimpse of that that you got back in the days of Solomon. God still wants to bring that to pass. And he is going to do it in the latter days, it says. And then I gave a couple chapters from uh, Jeremiah to read. And those really have to do with God raising up the branch of David, right? That he hasn't forgotten his promise to David. And in the new covenant, he is going to set David's son on the throne. Okay? So, God will, that the hope of Israel, of faithful Israel, was that God would visit his people. That he would bring judgment where judgment is needed. And he would bring salvation where salvation is needed, deliverance where that's needed. And that's where Luke opens his gospel. And so tonight, I'm not going to walk through the first uh, chapters. There's a great, if I can call my own teaching great, there's a a thorough walkthrough on on the podcast that I posted. Um, Tonight, I want to look at faithful Israel. In the opening chapters of, uh, of Luke. Israel that's longing for deliverance. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to give... I don't think I gave an outline of Luke last week. So uh, let me just give an outline. Because Luke, of anyone, Luke writes an orderly account. He says, my goal is to write an orderly account. That you would know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. And so if anything gives us certainty... It's the orderliness of Luke's account. All right? So, the introduction is chapters 1 through 4, verse 13. Okay? And that's broken down into the prologue, which is kind of its own thing. The first four verses. The birth and childhood of Jesus. 
which are chapter 1, verse 5 through uh, chapter 2. Chapter 3 and 4 through verse 13 are the preparation for Jesus' ministry. Chapter 3 focuses on John the Baptist's ministry. Chapter 4 deals with uh, the temptation of Jesus, his baptism and his temptation, and then his anointing, and really the beginning of his ministry. Then chapter 4, verse 14 through 9:50 are the, the ministry in Galilee. So Jesus' ministry within his hometown, his hometown area. Uh, chapter 9, 51 through 1948 are the journey to Jerusalem. All right, in chapter, I'll go there real quick. In chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And from that point on, his goal is to get to Jerusalem to accomplish the work that he was sent to do. And it's a work that encapsulates all three of those things. God delivering the people from their oppressors, God dealing with sin once and for all, and God putting a Davidic king on the throne uh, forever. Then chapters 20 through 24 are in Jerusalem. Okay, it's Holy Week. It's the crucifixion. Uh, There's a couple chapters of him teaching in the temple. He goes up to the temple and he teaches with the people there. Uh, chapters 22, 23, and 24 are the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to point out, in this outline, in Luke's orderly account, because uh, Luke, we're going to go to Acts after Luke, and in Luke's orderly account, this is how he does it. Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus' birth is really uh, miraculous. And it's, it's anointed by God. But then he goes and he's raised up in his household and it just as a normal guy, a normal kid. It says he was subject to his parents, which I think is really interesting. Jesus was obedient to his parents. And he doesn't start his ministry until he's 30, which is amazing to think about. But he comes on the scene. The first thing he does, he's baptized, which is kind of an anointing. Then he goes and what? He's driven out into the wilderness... And he defeats Satan in the wilderness. He defeats the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. After that, he comes back and he enjoys, it says, the word spread all around. This is a guy, this is a powerful man. Well, if you think of David, right? He's anointed as king long before he ever takes the throne. He's anointed. Then he goes and defeats Goliath. Then he gets really popular. Then what happens? Then Saul doesn't like that he's popular. Neither do the Philistines. And David, for the last half of the book of 1 Samuel, is sort of a man with, without a home. Everybody hates him. And the further the book goes along, he's just on the run with his ragtag crew of mighty men. Well, this is exactly the way Luke tells the story of Jesus. He goes, he, he defeats Satan in the wilderness, he defeats Goliath, and he comes and he starts to proclaim the kingdom of God And the Jews don't like him. And the Gentiles don't like him. And nobody, and and there's this, he's popular, but then there's this increasing opposition to Jesus as you go along through the story. It's exactly the same as the story of David. Then, Jesus ends up in Jerusalem. Well, David 
after Saul dies, the first thing he does is he takes his ragtag group of people and he goes to take the city of Jerusalem to establish the capital of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem with his ragtag group of disciples and he takes Jerusalem and he, he, he totally redoes their vision of what the temple is for. And he, set, he ascends to his throne, which is the cross, his earthly throne, which is the, the cross in Jerusalem. And so that mirrors the story of David in so many ways, just the, the structure of it, right? The, the whole journey to Jerusalem. That's what David was really doing. Uh, he, as he's in exile, he's bouncing from place to place, hiding from his enemies. It's not his time to die yet. <laughs> and, he's, and then he heads to Jerusalem. And from Jerusalem, he establishes the kingdom of Israel and puts worship at the center and says, from Jerusalem, we're going to, from the worship that happens here at the temple, we are going to spread outward to the nation of Israel and outward from the nation of Israel to the world. That's exactly what happens in the story of Luke and Acts. Luke, you could say, the big outline of Luke and Acts is to Jerusalem. Um, he goes, Jesus comes from heaven and goes to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. I mean, in the book of Luke. In the book of Acts, the gospel goes from Jerusalem out to the ends of the earth. And that just totally um, mirrors the, the story of David and the establishment of the kingdom of Jerusalem. All right. So, I want to zoom in tonight on chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 22. And I'm glad, we're, I'm glad we're doing it like this, because this is a, there are just several sections in Luke that if you just live with them and kind of meditate on them, uh, they just bear so much fruit in your life. And so tonight I want to talk about Simeon and Anna. And I'll just read the story of uh, the presentation of Jesus in the temple. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, anyone remember the Levitical law of the uh, purification after childbirth? It's eight days to the circumcision, and then 33 days um, till the woman is cleansed and able to appear at, in the temple to offer the redemption of the firstborn. Um, it's 66 days if, you, if, it, if the kid's a girl. I don't know why there's a difference, but there is. <laughs> it's funny. Um, but it also says that they offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which is the, uh, if you're poor, you can offer this. Right? So their family was poor, and they were offering the poor man's offering for the firstborn. Maybe why Jesus has a heart for the poor. <clears throat> now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And all of those Isaiah, Jeremiah prophecies should echo in your head. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his mother and his father marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow... Until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. I like Simeon and Anna. And I want us to just ponder the picture that we have of them together. And... um, in, in prayer this afternoon, this is where God brought me, that, that we need to learn something from them. The first thing that I see is that their entire lives were oriented around seeing the promises of the Lord fulfilled and seeing the salvation of Israel. Their lives were oriented around waiting on God. Simeon says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He he had a bucket list, and the only thing on it was to see the Messiah. I wonder how many of us have bucket lists, and, you know, if we're given 10 days to live, what would you say? Well, I really just want to make sure that I'll be able to depart in peace if fill in the blank. For Simeon, it was to see the Lord's Messiah. That was the only thing that he lived for. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I can go to the grave a happy man because my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Now think about that. Is your life that oriented around seeing the kingdom come? To where if it happened, you could just take off and you'd be be good to go. Like Paul says, hey, to depart, I'd rather just go home and be with the Lord. Take me now. Simeon says, I can leave now. My eyes have seen salvation. Anna, it says, was married for a while, but then she became a widow. And it says, from that time on, she was in the temple. Worshiping with fastings and prayer. Simeon lived to see the salvation of God. Anna did not live to find another husband, to find that security, to find that fulfillment. She lived to wait on God and to worship Him in the temple. It says night and day. She did not depart from the temple. So in these two people, their lives were oriented around 
seeking God, seeking his face. For Simeon, it was his only bucket list item. And for Anna, a widow, she was content in her widowhood, in her singleness, to be before the Lord in the temple, to not depart day and night, worshiping with fastings and prayer. The second thing is that they were obedient to everything they knew God desired. Okay, of Simeon it says, he was a righteous man and devout. Anna, it says, she was a prophetess. These were people who, they did not, they were seeking God, but there were long stretches of time where there wasn't anything in return. There wasn't any feedback, any response for them. They were obedient in the meantime, and they did not get distracted. They did not lose heart. They persisted and were obedient to the law. Simeon was a righteous man, it says, and he was waiting on God. The third thing is that their eyes were open. Their eyes were wide open to be able to recognize when the Messiah had arrived. And when you think about it, they probably were not, probably the most frequent image that they got in their mind when they were praying for the consolation of Israel and the Davidic king and the the restoration of the kingdom, probably they did not have in mind a one-month-old baby. But because they were totally oriented around this, and their eyes were wide open. As soon as God revealed to them the Messiah, they were able to recognize Him. Now this is awesome, because I think God really, really likes Simeon and Anna. God could not, think about this, God could not wait to reveal the Messiah to Simeon and Anna. Other than Jesus' family, these are the first two that got to know that Jesus was the Messiah. They got the sneak peek. No one else knew. It was going to be a long time, 30 years, before people started to really wrestle with, who is this guy? What's, What's he all about? God saw the hearts of Simeon and Anna, and he said, I don't want to wake him wait any longer. When's the time of purification up? 33 days? Show them today. Show them on the first day that anyone from the public could come into contact with this child. God couldn't wait to reveal his plan to his, to his faithful children who were crying out day and night to see the Lord's salvation. God was so excited. And he allowed them he had, told, uh, he had told Simeon, hey, you're not going to die. Simeon, I'm so glad to tell you, you're not going to die before you see my Messiah. You live in an awesome time, man. You are going to see my Messiah in the flesh. And you're going to go to your grave knowing that you saw him. This is so awesome. For every Simeon and Anna, though, who got the front row seat, I mean, they hit the jackpot in terms of seeking God and waiting on God. They got to see Him. They were the first ones in line. 
For every, for every Simeon and Anna, there's a thousand others. Equally righteous, equally devout. Who went to their grave in hope and greeting it from afar? But God was able, he was finally, I couldn't show anyone else in all of Hebrews 11. I couldn't show him yet. But I can show you, Simeon. I can show you, Anna. And so this is a picture that we have of what it means to wait on God. What it means to really seek the face of God. You know, we, we, we are called in these days to humble ourselves, to turn from our wicked ways, and to seek the face of God. Our, our land is broken. Our nation is broken. Has been for a while. But the cracks are really, really showing in these days of, of pressure and tribulation. And the people of God, as we read last week, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I'm going to hear from heaven. And I will heal their land. This is what it looks like to humble yourself to turn from wicked ways and to seek the face of God. You look at Simeon, you look at Anna. We are called to share the gospel. Our great cry as a, as a church is for Christ to be birthed in other people. He has been born in us. We have been born as children of God. And like Paul says, I am in the anguish of childbirth till Christ be formed in you. We want to see Christ formed in other people. We want to see the Lord's salvation come into the lives of the people that we interact with. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. And so if you think of that in terms of Simeon and Anna, ask yourself, are you, is your life oriented around seeing Christ formed in someone else. Who is that person? And is your life truly, are you truly, righteously and devoutly waiting for Christ to be formed? Seeking God. Worshiping in the temple with fastings and prayer so that Christ would come in this particular person. We're called to that work. That's, that's, we don't, we're not called to go out and throw tracks at people and hope that they respond and say a sinner's prayer. We are called to enter into the intercession of Jesus himself, that Christ would be formed in hearts. And so Simeon and Anna are a, are a, a lofty challenge for us, who have seen Jesus, who do have the Holy Spirit, who know how it all works out. Have we oriented our lives around seeing Christ formed? Are we obedient to everything that we know that we are to do and be as a people? Are we disciplined? Simeon surely had his desires under control, had his longings under control. Anna certainly 
had her desires and fears under control so that she could wait on God? Do we have that level of obedience, that level of righteousness as we wait for God to move among us? And are we open? Are are our eyes open? Are our hearts open to when God says, this is how I'm going to work. This is how I'm going to reveal myself to this person. Do we see it and say, yes, that is God. And we affirm it prophetically. Yes, what's happening to you is of God and you need to turn and repent. Are we open to whatever God, however he would move and use us? Are we open? If you notice, there's three O words just worked out like that. Oriented, the orientation of our life. Obedience. In the, in, the, in the long stretches of time sometimes that can go by before we actually see God move. Are we obedient? Are we not distracted? Elsewhere, Jesus talks about the stewards of the kingdom who when the master goes away, they begin to become drunk and beat the other servants. Simeon and Anna did not become drunk. They did not get drawn away by pleasures and diversions. They did not get angry at the other people around them and begin to be at odds with people and just kind of enter into the fray. They did not get drunk and beat the other servants. They were there seeking the face of God. Is that our heart? Orientation, obedience, and openness. This is who we're called to be as people that seek the face of God and want to see Christ come and formed in the hearts of the people that we're reaching out to. And not just, the, you know, not just the evangelistic opportunities that we have. Christ formed in our kids. Is our family, are our families oriented around Christ being formed in each one of our kids? And are we obedient and diligent to do everything that we know to create the best possible environment for that to happen? That's what I mean by obedience. That's what righteousness is. Simeon and Anna were doing everything they knew to create the best possible chance to see God move. For Anna, it looked like being in the temple day and night, worshiping with fastings and prayer. For Simeon, it looked like communing with the Holy Spirit being righteous and devout. Are we obedient to those things? And are we open to however God would like to move? Because it's counterintuitive sometimes. Our vision for what God can do or is going to do in someone's life is not always, in fact, I would say it's generally not <laughs> the way it ends up happening. And are we open to go with what God, how God decides to move? And to be ready to affirm the hand of God and the presence of God. Amen? So that's what was on my heart. Uh, the orientation of our lives, the obedience as we wait on God, the devotion, and the openness uh, for when, when He decides to move. Are we going to move with Him and be on board? Um, so, let's pray. And uh, Stephen, maybe we can... Are you here? Are you in here? There you are. We can just uh, spend a couple minutes waiting on God and praying. Um, 
around these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these uh, two beautiful pictures of faithful servants. And Lord, we want to uh, be more like Simeon and Anna. Lord, we want to be the kind of people that you are so excited to reveal your purposes to. Uh, Lord, we don't want to have so many preconceived notions that you're unable to get through to us. Lord, we don't want to have uh, competing life goals that crowd out a a total, sold-out devotion to you. And Lord, we don't want to uh, waver in our devotion. We don't want to be up and down and in and out, depending on our mood. We want to be consistent, God. Lord, we want the only desire that we have in this life to be you, uh, your presence coming, and Christ, you being formed in the hearts of those around us. Lord, let us see that. Would you let us see that? And God, I pray that you'd reveal any any, uh, particular hindrances that are in our lives. Lord, maybe the orientation of our lives is just off. In a big way or a small way. Lord, help us to reorient. Give us a single heart. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, come with your Holy Spirit and uh, convict us and mature us, Lord. For your glory. Amen.